Father in heaven, we've already heard um, from Charlotte, taught the kids and the rest of us this morning, that you're the kind of God who, who loves to multiply and to nourish. And so we pray this morning as we come to look at these verses together, as we reflect upon them together, you would take what's been prepared and indeed you would nourish us. That we might see more of your beauty and your goodness. And indeed what it means to be those who follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment um, that's causing, I think, a bit of a stir. It describes itself as an international bestseller, but um, most books seem to be. If you look on the front cover, they seem to generally all claim that anyway. It's, um, in many ways, though, it tracks with the idea at the heart of this passage. It's a book called this, The Second Mountain. Anybody heard of that? Give me a rough hand if you have. Just me. Awkward. Okay. Uh, it's written by an American journalist called David Brooks. And the idea at the heart of it is that the usual things that people run after in life, so um, success or money or possessions or houses, the first mountain, he would say, often very self-centered about me and what I can achieve and what I get out of life. Well, that first mountain tends not to be the one that actually satisfies so he's interviewed loads of people and spoken to, to many folk. Um, and indeed, people who have experienced hard stuff in their lives. And he realizes about halfway through, for many, they, they kind of reach the top of where they wanted to get to. And then suddenly they come to, the terms with, come to terms with the fact that this is not actually what they were after in the first place. It's not really what life was about after all. It's not what we're here for, he would say. There's this fundamental shift in priorities, a, a second mountain to climb and to engage with. It's a, it's a secular book, but it's very interesting. It's a shift from um, self-centered to others-centered. It's a shift from uh, away from me and towards cause or community of where you find fulfillment. It's indeed seeking to serve. If I can put it this way, it's this first mountain where you're looking for happiness, but actually on the second mountain where you experience deep joy. Something of a testimony for him as he's written it. He's gone through hard times. And I wonder if Jesus in this passage, in one sense, would totally agree with David Brooks as to what he's saying. A fulfilled, a fulfilled life is not about me and what I can get out of it, what I can get from it. But, but in another sense, I wonder if Jesus might disagree with what ought to be at the center. For it's not simply other people at the center on the second mountain. It's not simply a community or a cause or something to live for. But actually, Jesus would say, it's him. He, he ought to be at the center. A fulfilled life, a life full of joy, is a life that is focused on him. It's about following him. Indeed, being prepared to suffer for him, which, which is a remarkable claim if he's not who he says he is. Let's back up a bit and see how Jesus arrives at that climax. Um, two points this morning, if you're a, a kind of note taker. Um, first one, verse 22 to 30, how to see. Um, Mark likes to deliberately teach us, not just through the words of Jesus, but through his ministry and his activity as well. So if you like, this is a section of acted parables. And um, what Jesus does and the way he does it relate to the truths that he's trying to explain to us and to teach us. So an example, if you go back to um, chapter 7, uh, 7 verse 32 to 37, <coughs> or 31 to 37, you, you see there the account of a deaf man. It's actually a very similar account to the one this morning. But the, middle, the point is, it's in the middle of a section where he's calling people to hear and understand his teaching. 
and yet they are deaf, they're not getting it. And so they need him to help them to hear, to understand what it is he's really saying. And the context then in chapter 8 where we are for this morning is the Pharisees failing to see and understand the miracles of Jesus. We, we heard that last week from Matt. Indeed, as we'll see, Peter and the disciples failing to grasp what it means for Jesus to be the king, to be the Messiah. Which is why you get this sort of peculiar, unique, halfway healing. Do you spot that as... Arthur read it for us. It's, it's not just that Jesus is kind of misfiring in some way. He's got a loose wire, doesn't, doesn't quite get it right first time, has to have a second go. But now I take it he sets it up for us so that we can see what's going on with Peter in a moment. So come with me into the, the shoes of the blind man from Bethsaida. It's page 1011, if you um, shut it. Imagine the world was black. No, no light, no sunrises, no sunsets, no faces of the people you love. All there is is darkness, this life of darkness. And yet into that darkness you get this glimmer of hope because you hear news of this man, this Jesus, and he seems to be doing extraordinary things. Apparently, apparently he's making lime, lame people walk. Apparently he's, he's raising dead people. He's making deaf people hear. And maybe he is the answer. Maybe he can do something for your eyes. And, and the word is, he's coming onto your patch. He's coming to Bethsaida. Actually, 6 verse 45, you heard that. If only you could get to him, though. If only you could reach this Jesus and speak to him somehow. And so plans are hatched and people are enlisted. And, and they approach him for you. They, they beg Jesus to heal you, to touch you. And so pick it up at verse 23. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? You see, it's a private thing still. He's outside the village, away from people, away from the hustle and bustle of life and the folk who are following. And Jesus spits on him and touches him. And says, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people and they look like trees walking around. It feels a bit like one of those techie mates. I don't know, the Martin Groats of this world. You, you know, who can fix anything, but maybe not first time. <laughs> and so you give them the bike or you give them the watch and they look at it and they fix it and they adjust it and they say, oh, have a look at that, see if that works. And it's not quite right yet. I have to say, Martin would do it right first time, of course he would. <laughs> But there's still some adjusting that needs to go on. Still a bit of tweaking, a bit of working, turning, just adjusted. And that feels a bit like that with Jesus. A man looks around and it's, it's like a clip from the Lord of the Rings. You've got these Ent-type walking tree things. Something's not quite right. It's a bit awkward, Jesus. You've, you've mucked up there. And so he tries again, verse 25, once more. He puts his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And the response, again, is to keep quiet. Just as it was with the evil spirits we've already seen in weeks gone by. Until this point, his truth, the truth about his identity is still a secret. And that will change soon. Do you have an answer to verse 27? So you're there with them. And Jesus turns to you and says, who do people say I am? 
And you see their replies, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. We, we know this is the kind of triad going on about him. They were speculating about uh, these three at Herod's party back in um, chapter 6, was it? Do you remember? King Herod heard, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others say he's Elijah, and still others, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. So we know that little triad of individuals are what people are thinking. And Peter has a go with them first. It's quite arm's length. Well, people are saying this, Jesus, which Jesus clearly knew already. And so Jesus then turns up the heat. What about you? Who do you say I am? He says. And it's an emphatic you. No hiding behind what other people say now, Peter. Who do you say I am? Do you have an answer for that one? Who do you say he is? What do you make of Jesus? Peter gets it right. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And suddenly at this point, the whole flavor of the gospel changes from this verse onwards. Now it's far less about who Jesus is, but much more about um, what he's come to do and what it means to follow him. Mark has been stacking up the evidence week after week for us. But now he says, this is how, how we follow him, because you've worked out who he is. Now we've been in on the secret, actually. If you remember from chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning, we knew, we were told who Jesus is. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so like some kind of barrister in a court of law, Mark has zoomed in on different areas of Jesus' life, different stories, stacking up the evidence, showing us what he told us at the start. And the disciples, or at least Peter, have got it now, or at least they've got part of it. And when he says Messiah or Christ, it's not a surname. You can't look in the phone book under M or C if they still have phone books. I'm not sure they do. But it's a title. It means anointed king. God's king promised in the Old Testament that would come and rule God's kingdom forever. Jesus is that king that they've been waiting for. And at this point, the gospel changes because Peter sees now who Jesus is. Peter can see that. And identity matters. It's a bit old school, but many of you um, will have come across or heard of the film Notting Hill. Showing my age slightly, looking hopeful. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe it's totally off your radar, and I'm just getting old. If you've never heard of it, ask your parents. Um, it's worth watching. There's a famous scene in that film, though, um, with a man called Bernie. He's lovely, he's slightly embarrassing and a bit awkward. And he meets this lady named Anna Scott, played by Julia Roberts. Um, in the film, she's in the film and in reality, she's a Hollywood A-lister. Um, he doesn't realise who she is, and it's a party. And there's a scene that goes like this. It starts with Bernie. So, so tell me, Anna. I'm not going to do voices. So tell me, Anna, what, what do you do? She says, I'm an actress. Bernie, oh, I'm actually in the stock market myself. So not really similar fields, though I have done the odd bit of amateur stuff, PG Woodhouse farce, all that. I've always imagined that as a pretty tough job, though, acting. I mean, the wages are a scandal, aren't they? Anna says, well, they can be. 
Bernie says, I see friends from university. They've been in the business longer than you. They are scraping by on seven to eight thousand pounds a year. It's no life. What sort of acting do you do? She says, oh, films mainly. Oh, splendid. Well done. How's the pay in movies? I mean, the last film you did, what did you get paid? Fifteen million dollars. <laughs> right, so, so that's fairly good then. Um, and Bernie made a big mistake because he didn't get her identity right. He didn't understand who she was. He didn't know that she was this famous actress. And I don't know where you've got to with your understanding of who Jesus is. Working out his identity. Whether you believe what Mark is claiming for us. It might be that you're here and you're a Christian and you're with Mark and you're convinced that Jesus is God's king. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But I don't want to make any assumptions and I want to talk to those among us this morning who will not be convinced. Maybe this is your first week here. Maybe you come along week by week by week. Maybe you've been coming for years and you're actually you're just not sure who Jesus is. And I want to give you a challenge, if I may. I want you to be, to be brave, and I want you to dare to pray that Jesus might open your eyes, that you might see who he is. The language of previous weeks, that he might make your, hurt, your heart like fertile ground, that you might begin to bear fruit. It's, it's much more of an important issue than mistaking a famous actress. Because if he is who he says he is, if he has the authority to speak and to teach and to heal and to rescue and even to forgive sins and deal with sinful hearts, then he really deserves our attention. And so if I can give you a challenge, be brave and ask God to help you to see. Because Mark says, look, Jesus can make blind people see. People like the blind man at Bethsaida, he can help you to see if you want it. But that's not the end of the story. The account goes on. Peter might have identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the King. Now Jesus needs to help us understand the kind of definition of King that we're working from. And that we might be a bit faulty. And so if verse 22 to 30 is how to see, and 31 to 38 is how to follow. And I need to give a health warning at this point. Because these are remarkably challenging words in the second half. They're remarkably challenging at the best of times, but I wonder if they are particularly challenging for people like us in a place like this, in a culture that we live in, where denying yourself is actually seen as something wrong or dangerous. You see, for us to be healthy and whole, or, then we ought to indulge what we want to. As long as we're not hurting anybody else, whatever our desires might be, and, and you be you, and you do your thing, and don't listen to the haters, and ignore the negative voices, and be true to yourself, and, and you forge your own path, our culture says. And yet Jesus says to us, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What are we to make of that? Is Jesus as black and white as he seems to be? Can we trust him 
to make those kinds of claims, those kinds of demands upon us. Remember, of course, that that call for self-denial, that call to follow him entirely, is, is rooted in his own experience and example. He's not asking us to do something that he's not prepared to do himself. He's not the leader sat miles behind the front line in in safety and comfort and just in it for himself, but rather he is the one blazing the path as he calls us to follow him. You see that in the middle paragraph there, verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see, Peter has got that he is the Christ, the Messiah, God's king. But his definition of kingship is faulty. I think he would have thought Jesus would come and would restore the temple, sort out worship among the people, and indeed come and deal with the Romans cleanse the land, the people who were oppressing the people of God, making them slaves. That was the expectation. But what he doesn't understand is that in God's plan, the Romans are peanuts. They are nothing, really. They are tiny. Jesus has come to deal with far bigger enemies than just the Romans. Bigger enemies who were oppressing them, making them slaves, enemies of sin, of of death, of Satan, the, the kind of enemies that Jesus had been dealing with for the last eight weeks or so. And once and for all, he will deal with as he goes via the cross. That is why he came. And so you see, Peter at this point is in the walking tree stage of the blind man. He can see a bit. He he sees who Jesus is. But he doesn't see what he's come to do, though. And so he doesn't get the cross. And so when Jesus starts to talk about being rejected by the religious establishment, verse 31, and being killed, and three days later rising again, Peter's draw drops to to his feet. You're joking, Jesus. Stop it. Get out of town. And so he takes Jesus aside for a quiet word, verse 32. And then Jesus has a less than quiet word in response, verse 33. Again, this is not a private chat. You see, he looks at the disciples and he speaks to Peter. He rebukes Peter. It is for all to see. This is not private. If you've got your radar on, there's a really interesting parallel with with a thing we've already had back in Mark at the beginning. All the way back in, I think, September, at his baptism in chapter 1. Do you remember? His sonship is revealed. The father spoke and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And then he's in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And so eight chapters on, again, here we have his identity, not so much as son, but actually as king, and indeed his mission as king that's been revealed. And once again, there is Satan seeking to thwart that in some sense. But Jesus must go the way of the cross. There is no shortcut. There is no way around it. That was why he came. He came to die. That has to be the path. And this is not just an idea for us to understand. It's 
something for us to grapple with and kind of work out in our heads. The passage says the path of Jesus is to be the path of Jesus' people. The path of Jesus is to be our path. And so that's what's going on in verse 34 to 38. When we understand the kind of king he's come to be, we understand the kind of kingdom that we're to be a part of. In one sense, they are very famous verses. They are easy to understand. That is not the problem. The problem is the daily doing, isn't it? We've already had following in Mark's gospel. He's called his disciples to follow him, and follow him they have. Simon and Andrew and James and Zebedee, remember, by the lake, leave their nets, they follow. Maybe there it was more a sense of blind trust. Now we have his mission, so his identity clarified for us. And so now we know what it means to follow him more clearly. I think it's a fundamental choice at the heart of these verses. And as I say, there's a health warning. I think it's as stark as this. I think it's either life now and death forever, or death now and life forever. Life now and death forever, or death now and life forever. Of course, it depends on what definition of life you're working from. If life for you is a question of that first mountain that we began with, of shaping your priorities and your diary and your life, that you might get the most out of it, where you are at the centre, doing it in a way that you fundamentally want, so you spend your money and you spend yourself in the way that you want, or maybe that might be a, a diagnostic tool to help us think through what we think life is about. If life is about me, then these verses make no sense. It's probably too early days to say this, but in our house, I think it's fair to say, it's not just me, we've been following the story of Kanye West with real interest. Um, If you've not heard of him, ask your kids. (laughs) He's a music artist, he's a a rapper, and he seems to have become a Christian. Um, I read an article recently, and in the interview he said this, he said, when I was trying to serve multiple gods... It drove me crazy. Then he clarifies what these multiple gods were or are. He says the god of ego, the god of money, the god of pride, and the god of fame. And we don't know how the Kanye story will end up. He's an interesting character. But we do know that he sees now, he's looking for life in those things. He was seeking to serve those things. He describes them in other songs as idols. That was the first mountain. Maybe he's reached the top and he's realized there's a second mountain. Jesus is very clear. It's, it's stark, isn't it? It's life now or it's life forever. I think he says it three times in these verses. Um, firstly, in verse 34, you must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And to take up your cross picks up an idea of shame and humiliation, of carrying your own form of execution with you, of ending in death even. But it means that we are not in charge of our life anymore. It means that we're prepared to die to self. It means giving everything and, and Jesus saying, saying to Jesus, I'll do whatever you want and I will go wherever you go. 
And that'll even be to a shameful death like you experienced for me. Which means that Dan Steele is now dead. It means that I am not the boss of me anymore. It means I'm not in the driving seat for my life anymore. It means that my life is not about me anymore and what I want now anymore. But rather it's about him and what he wants as we take up our cross and follow him. It means that he is in the driving seat. That will have implications for us. That will have daily applications for us. But it's being prepared to put to death self that we might follow him. Second way he puts it, verse 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And we say, well, come on, Jesus, can't we, let's be honest, can't we have life now and life forever? Can't we have cake and eat it, please? Doesn't that work? I think Jesus says, no, if you try and save your life now, if you try and live with you as the boss now, you will lose your life forever. But if you lose your life for him now, and you follow him with all that you are now, and you let him call the shots now, then you will have life forever. Verse 36 and 37. What good is it for someone, this is the third one, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? (laughs) Which makes you think of Kanye. Pursuing the God of ego, money, pride, fame will send us, in his words, a little crazy. You might have all the stuff in the world. You might have power and mansions and Bentleys and savings and bling and followers by the billion. And You might be a millionaire multiple times over. You might gain the whole world. But firstly, in gaining the world, you've probably lost your soul anyway. But secondly, what happens when you die? You've not given God a thought. You've... You've not bowed the knee to him. You followed self. And now you've lost everything, including your soul. And you're lost forever. The point is, if we follow him to the cross, if we die to ourselves, so we receive the benefits of why he went to the cross in the first place. As he hangs there in eight chapters' time, gasping for breath, taking God's righteous anger against the sin of his people upon himself. So the life that he wins is given to us. It means we can be friends with the one who made the world, the one we were made to know forever. Jesus dies so that we don't have to. He dies that we might live forever and so have life. I'm aware that truth is unpopular and it won't make me many friends. But it's a stark thing that Jesus raises up for us this morning. It sits at the heart of what it means to be a Christian in one sense. And I'm aware that it's stark. I'm aware that into our culture, those kinds of truths don't sit necessarily very nicely or comfortably. We're a people who want to have Life and life. Just as we finish, um, three 
application points just to chew over. I'll raise them now. There'll be opportunity in home groups maybe to think through more of them. First thing that comes out, perhaps I'm reflecting on these verses, is that let's be a church that gets Jesus right. By which I mean there is a danger of getting Jesus wrong. Which in one sense sounds very obvious and very simple. But sometimes you hear people say, well, that's not my Jesus. No, 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 that's not how I like to think of Jesus. That's not the Jesus whom I serve. To me, Jesus is more like this, they say. And usually that kind of Jesus is one who doesn't make such demands upon us, who doesn't mind so much when we get stuff wrong. Actually, he's just quite like us, but sort of multiplied up. It may not even be as stark as that. It may just be we're tempted to shape him to be a bit more like us. So that he has the same kind of priorities that we have. He cares about the same kinds of things that we do. But one thing, I know it's not the main thing, but one thing just struck me from this passage this morning is that it is very easy to get him wrong and the kind of king that he is. And indeed, particularly, the necessity of the cross. It's clear that getting him wrong matters. Peter felt the brunt end of that. So let's pray that we might be a humble church, willing to believe Jesus to be who he says he is, rather than whom we would like him to be, but actually willing as well to be those who will follow him and to deny ourselves, whatever that means for us in our context. That might look quite different for each of us. But let's be those who are prepared to trust him to get him right and to follow him. Second one is obvious as well. It's let's be a church that's willing to follow Jesus. Even willing to follow him to the cross, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow. And it's not, it's not just an optional thing. This is not just for, for the leaders, for the super keen, for, for those who have been a Christian for a while. This is normal daily living Daily faithfulness, daily death to self for common or garden Christians. People like you, if you would call yourself a believer, and indeed people like me. And I'm aware that it works its way out in the little things. It may be big decisions that we make, but often it's actually just the very little things of life. It's that moment, that decision, that opportunity that daily interaction with that person, that daily choice that we need to make, the way that we treat somebody else, our our willingness to love them. So let's be a church that is willing to follow Jesus. But thirdly as well, a church that knows it's worth it. You see, I think if we are engaging with this properly, our question ought to be, but is it worth it? Is it worth it? And yet one of the beautiful things about Jesus is that he knows us far better than we do. And friends, he is way more committed to our joy and to us having life than we are. And he has so much more wisdom and kindness than we do. 
And so as he calls us to follow him, know that we can trust him. See, my problem is, well, I just wonder if I know a bit better than Jesus sometimes. Or I wonder, actually, Jesus, I think I know how to find joy, really. I'm I'm not sure it's this way. I'm not sure it's going the way of the cross. But let's be a church that is prepared to trust him and knows it's worth it, that knows that he loves us and he is good. And he is so committed to our good and so committed to our joy and so committed to our life that he is willing to lay down his own life for us. And as he calls us to follow him, let's remember how much he loves us and how um, generous he is, indeed how loving he is, how committed he is to the joy of his people. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we confess how hard we can find it to follow Jesus as he calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. As he calls us to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. We confess how easy we, we want to gain the whole world to look for life and joy in the things around us rather than in trusting him. And so we pray that you would open our eyes perhaps for the first time, perhaps afresh, that we might see who Jesus is and indeed that we might see what it means to follow him. I thank you that he is committed to our joy, more committed than we are. Thank you that he knows us better than we do. Thank you that he is so committed to our life that he was willing to lay down his own. Help us as we help one another to follow him. In his name we pray. Amen.